The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see everybody. It's nice for us to wear name tags on Monday nights, especially the weeks that we have small groups. So usually that's the all the even weeks, so week two, week four, week six, and week eight. But uh, before I cover more of the nuts and bolts, I thought we could just check in a little bit about the meditation. And um, you might consider doing this style of practice this week where you just put aside your other trainings or other strategies that you use and you're just interested, and you can do it again with your eyes open or closed, but you're just interested in discovering or rediscovering, recognizing the mind that knows, the you know what we call awareness, and then to be reflectively aware of what awareness is knowing. So in a way, we're tracking. The knowing mind is already there. The sort of activity of awareness is already happening when we're awake. And so we can train the mind to recognize that awareness is happening, to be interested that there is awareness, there is knowing, and to track it. And then we'll lose it, and then we pick it up. And it's interesting, some of you know Ajahn Brahm, a well-known Western Buddhist monk in the Thai forest tradition, is an abbot of a monastery in Australia. And uh, for a long time, making the rounds on the internet, he had his basic instructions for meditation practice. He tends to emphasize developing uh, deep states of concentration. But what's interesting is he wants his students, before they do anything else, to be able to sit for an hour and just sustain present moment awareness. You're not trying to stop your mind from thinking. You're not trying to do anything but track present moment awareness for an hour. And when you can do that almost all the time, then he'll say, now do that with a silent mind. So tracking present moment awareness without the mind resorting to thinking. Right? So then he calls that sustained silent meditation. Now, just to, just to accomplish the first stage of practice is obviously something. I'm sure you noticed tonight, you know, just how many moments, let alone minutes, were sustained before there was a little break in that thread of awareness, that reflective awareness. So the mind was reflectively aware that knowing was knowing, knowing this, knowing that. So first, an hour of sustained present moment awareness, anything goes, then sustained silent awareness, and then sustained silent focused awareness, where instead of a diversity of objects, then letting the mind settle on a particular object, like the breath, for example, or feeling of universal love would be a suitable object rest with. And you can get this instruction if you just put Ajahn Brahm meditation instructions, you Google that, you'll get the set. And it's 
you know, it's maybe a 15-page um, article that where he has his basic instructions, if you want. But just taking up that first set of instructions. So it would be nice to hear from a few folks right now, maybe three people or so, just to share a little bit about what you learned in the simple instruction of noticing that, re- that moment where the mind reflectively recognizes, oh, this is being known, remembering. And then that remembering is really the sustaining, like remembering to, that the knowing continues, right? Like what's being known just keeps happening. And what that sustaining is like, or what has gotten in the way, what you notice gets in the way, what attitude or habit of mind gets in the way, or just questions too, of course. But we just take five or so minutes to hear from a few people. Yeah, Lisa, you want to start off? Okay, I'm Lisa. Um, that was really interesting. Thank you. As a really different kind of practice than what traditionally I had been taught, which was, you know, focus on the breath, focus on the breath. And lately focusing on the breath leaves me either asleep or <laughs> in some other thinking realm. But it, what surprised me about it was how fast things go by. Like, you know, when you're not trying to focus your attention on something, it's like, you know, it's the touch of the shawl and then in a split second, it's the sound of something. And then it's the sensation of the coldness of the air coming through your nose. And, um, it actually felt a little easier to maintain than some of the other things that I've been taught. Um, the one thing that I wonder about, and maybe this just goes away with practice, is I also really felt like though there was a lot of labeling, like, oh, touch, or oh, shawl, or sound, or like, you know, there was definitely like sort of a verbiage, verbal mm-hmm. thing that went with it. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to. But I didn't tell you to label your experience. I I know, but that's what was going on, was like that was, you know, the awareness, it definitely hooked into like a word. Yeah, and it's not that that's wrong to do, right? Because it's a, you know, some people find that a very powerful and useful technique. And it is something, at the very least, we want to be able to, uh, a strategy we want to pull out from time to time where we mentally note the predominant experience it should be in everybody's repertoire of skillful means in terms of working, training the mind. But so just practice like recognizing the urge to label or to name what's happening because that's something too that's arising in the present moment. And that's just general, generally points to just because the mind is knowing doesn't mean the mind is seeing or knowing what's predominant. So from time to time, like if especially if it feels challenging to have this present moment awareness or to sustain this present moment awareness, this reflective awareness, you might just ask, like, well, what else is happening? What else is arising here that maybe the mind isn't currently knowing? And then you might notice then a kind of efforting that was there but wasn't being recognized. Oh, trying hard is being known. Trying hard is being known. Wanting to do it right is being known. So you can add a piece that was there but wasn't being seen, wasn't realized as something that can be known in the moment. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Another 
reflection from your sit tonight? Yeah, Spruce, all the way over. I, I noticed that when awareness was noticing sensation or sound or temperature, that it was pretty equanimous and that it just uh, was just noticing. But there was a lot of agenda around thought. You know, there was a lot of, oh, now you're planning. Oh, you know, So it was like, oh, everything else could just be known, but thought had to be dealt with. <laughs> yeah. And you see, the, the reason why this instruction is so useful is we want to know, in terms of our practice, we want to know the difference between trying to suppress activities of the mind and understand what mindfulness is, right? Because mindfulness is just that remembering that this is being known. Now, it can be in the service of all kinds of other mental strategies, meditative strategies. But it's really important, especially because we're doing, and I'll talk about, I'll introduce the seven factors in just a moment, but the first factor is mindfulness. And it's, one of the things that we do in this, these series of courses, you know, it's a six-year curriculum, is we're understanding the different pieces that come together to make up our practice. And so in a somewhat artificial way, we pull one piece. I mean, normally the different skillful means, strategies, mental qualities, they're working in harmony together in what we call being skillful or practicing on the path of awakening. But what really helps that organic, multi-phase practice to happen is from time to time to pick out one element of it and to really make sure the mind understands what it is. We learn some things. So now, the next couple of weeks, we're taking the time all week long, not just that Monday night, but the idea with some study and then, of course, daily practice or almost daily practice, we're specifically using that time of study and formal practice to get a sense of what the Buddha meant by sati, mindfulness. What is this remembering to recognize the present moment? Remembering it's like this. This is being known. What is that? quality of mind that we call mindfulness or sati. And uh, so to remember that it doesn't matter whether the mind is thinking or not. What matters is, is that particular muscle, that reflective muscle of this thinking is being known. Is that happening or not? That's what's relevant. Not whether the mind is complaining or judging or planning or experiencing exalted states of loving kindness. But is it being known? And a lot of times when we're directing the attention, we're kind of getting ourselves in a little bubble and removing ourselves from what might have been an afflictive state of mind. So we get some distance from some of the afflictive states. But it's not necessarily mindfulness. So that's why it's really worth taking the time. 
And not just like, okay, we'll do it these two weeks and then we'll have it down. But it's like every year of your practice to set aside, there should be some time, you know, and it might be handfuls of time, but you're like being willing to be a beginner again, even though you've been at an awareness practice. I mean, I've been at an awareness practice since 1982, pretty you know, day by day for that many years, whatever that is now. And uh, I still regularly, I'm a total beginner about like, okay, awareness, mindful awareness. What is that? Right? And just because it's new, it doesn't matter if I like had it. You know, I was in a groove and there was continuity. It, it has to be rediscovered. You, there's no resting on laurels in this practice. Right? Because it doesn't matter if we really had great continuity. The question is, what does that look like? What's that like now? How do we get, how does the mind find that groove here and now, that continuity of mindfulness? How about one more person before we go on? Yeah, please, Jana, who's just back from her month long with Ajahn Sushito. I'm really setting you up. <laughs> You better have something profound to say. <laughs> I better, yeah. No, so, let's see. So, for me, the effort of saying, is this being known, feels like it's a little bit getting in the way of continuity yeah. of mindfulness. Like, I feel like there's an aware, like a spacious awareness that is aware of things. But as soon as, like, I kind of like know it or like sort of make the effort to know it then suddenly I don't know it's like disrupting my flow or something yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really tricky and it's it's what the other thing you'll notice as you just play with this and I think play is a good word because one of the things that's going to keep you from learning from this instruction is trying in the wrong way to do this And so playing with it is uh, like you might feel like you're in a groove and you're not naming. And I I wasn't encouraging you to repeat or anybody to repeat that phrase, this is being known. But, you know, I have to give instructions, so I need to use words. But that doesn't mean you need to repeat those words in your practice. But you certainly can if it's functional or useful. But the interesting thing will be you'll be in a groove where there really is that Apparently, that continuity of awareness, that reflective knowing, it's like this, this is being known, without the languaging of it. And then there will be a little doubt. It will just be there, like, am I knowing? Now, the interesting in that moment is, habit energy, because you're all meditators, will arise to that I should meditate. But the important thing is just to know that there's doubt. Well, that's just doubt. Not to necessarily change anything you're doing. Because you did recognize that little, like, or this is a little clunky, or, you know. So that's all we have to do is just recognize that. Again, the hardest thing about this training is you're going to want to do more than you need to do. And that's why I set it up by really... um, having holding the question from time to time during the sit around doing 
whether there needs to be a doer or whether there's something that needs to be done, or is it more about recognizing or being reflectively aware or recognizing the awareness? Right? And so it's hard to not be the doer. That's the challenging thing about this. But it, it really helps us understand something about awareness because so much of um, understanding the path is understanding what right effort is. And understanding what the primary tool the Buddha keeps referring to, you know, sati or mindfulness. In one of uh, Gil's articles that I linked to on our webpage, so I'll, I'll say this right now while we're talking about it, Buddhist Studies dot and then Kamagran's website. So Buddhist Studies dot Buddhist Studies, all one word. That will take you to our webpage, the Buddhist Studies webpage, and it's just getting formed. And I'll be putting more and more resources up as the weeks go by. But there are a number of good articles, including the one I sent around to everybody who's currently on the Buddhist Studies email list. You got it this afternoon. But it's also on the webpage for those of you who aren't currently on the Buddhist Studies email list. And there's also a couple articles by Gil Fransdahl around mindfulness and around the seven factors of awakening that you can, for those who are ready to do some study, you can look at those articles. And to really get a sense of the kind of effort with that mindfulness requires. It's the effort of remembering. Even in the word, it's some of the root of the word sati is remember. The mind is remembering or recognizing what's being known. Good, so let me just cover some of the nuts and bolts and then do a little bit more introduction to the seven factors. And then next week we'll dig in more specifically with mindfulness and we'll have small groups. Um, So I mentioned a few things already. And uh, there is a criteria for this class for those who are new. We, I mean, basically the criteria we make up, the idea is we want people who are taking the class to be actively studying and actively practicing, meaning you're putting time aside every day or almost every day to train your mind instead of just letting the mind do whatever it wants, like the training we did tonight. We're just training to remember what's being known or to recognize what's being known. And so the criteria we created just to create a kind of a standard or something like somebody has to be interested enough in the practice to have gone on three meditation retreats in this tradition. And that they could be half-day retreats or they could be three-month retreats. And if you have any question about that, then ask. And then the other part of the criteria is just that you have a commitment to practicing daily. That doesn't mean you're going to always sit every day. I'm not saying that to get you off the hook, but I understand that we're not going to, everyone's not going to sit every day, but that you have this intention to sit every day, even if it's just for a few minutes, to do the training. Because the point of the Buddhist studies, the Monday night class, isn't we're not here appreciating how much sense these teachings of the Buddha make. They do. They make a lot of sense when you just think about them and study them. But that we're here as a community of folks that are fortunate enough to have some time in our lives to actually 
do something about what we're hearing and studying about. Okay? And then part of the commitment, too, is that we come every Monday night. Now, you might have business obligations, work obligations, family obligations. It's totally okay, or you might get sick. It's totally okay not to be here. But if you can come, then you come to the class. You don't choose to go see a movie on Monday night when you sign up. So it also that's different than like the weekly practice groups at the center where you just come whenever you want to come. But if you sign up for Buddhist studies, unless you have a family obligation or work obligation or you're sick, then you come. And an option for those who want it is if you're not coming, even for a good reason, you send me an email. Now, I don't need to know that you're not coming. But for some people, it's a really good discipline about working with that commitment. And nothing in the world happens without commitment, without dedication. So if that's useful for you, then make the resolve. Like, I may not be able to come because of some obligation, but I'm going to send an email to Mark, and it's going to say, can't come tonight. You can say more if you want, but you don't have to. And it's just, it's basically, I'm the surrogate for the whole community, but we don't want everyone in the community to be getting the emails. But it's like you're saying to the whole group, I'm really committed, but it doesn't make sense for me to be here tonight. But I'm committed to the group and to what we're doing together. Okay? So think about whether that makes sense in your life. See, I'll say more about the small group conversations next week when we have our first small group. Dave um, Halsey organizes the program hosts. If you're willing to help out one night during the eight-week course, Dave will tell you what you need to do. It's just about helping make sure the room gets set up and helping make sure the building gets closed down at the end of the evening. So it means coming a little early and staying a little bit later. But it isn't a huge commitment, but it is a nice way of taking care of the community and helping these uh, Monday night classes be more graceful. So check with Dave over here right afterward if you're interested in helping out. I mentioned name tags already. I mentioned the thing about the chanting. Um, it's really important to print neatly. If you're, if you're brand new to the Buddhist studies classes, then print your email really neatly because one of the things I'm going to do tomorrow is add all the people who are, haven't been in the Buddhist studies classes in the past into the Google group. And uh, it really helps if you print neatly. And uh, so if you're already in the Buddhist, getting the Buddhist studies emails, then put a line through your email address. Otherwise, I'll be spending time that I don't need to spend adding you to the group that you're already part of. Yeah, but it, you don't, you're getting the Buddhist studies emails. Yeah, and you can always unsubscribe to the Google group at the bottom of the, any Buddhist studies email if you want. We'll be recording this. Would you just do it tonight, Gabe? I don't know if any... Is, oh, are you doing it, Steve? Great, thank you. So it's already being recorded? Great. So great gratitude to Steve and Andre and the other people who are part of the audio team for getting these talks up online in case you do need to miss and you want to listen to the guided meditation or to the talk and discussions. You can do that. It usually takes about a week before they get up online. And there are a lot of people around the country and either, even overseas that are part of the Buddhist studies community, follow along with the readings and the, the talks and discussions.
Any questions about the nuts and bolts before we go on? Good. If you're here for a Buddhist studies class for the very first time, why don't you raise your hand? Put you on the spot. Oh, really? Oh, that's great. Welcome. And I think there are a number of people who aren't here tonight that might be part, so we'll see. Um, so let's start as an introduction, putting the seven factors of awakening. This is a list, a very important list in the tradition. You see it mentioned, referred to in many different places in the original teachings, the early teachings of the Buddha. Seven factors of awakening, sometimes translated as the seven factors of enlightenment, the bojangas is the Pali word. And I think the the roots, uh, the like for bojanga, the bo part means awakening, and the janga part means causes for, so causes for waking up. When these seven factors have arisen in our mind, these are natural or even, I think it's fair to say, inherent qualities of the mind, although they might be pretty suppressed or weak. But when they're developed and when they come into balance, three of the factors are energizing, three of these beautiful wholesome factors are tranquilizing, and mindfulness is more of a sort of governing factor of the other six. When these factors are developed and in balance, not too many energizing, not too many tranquilizing, but just nicely in balance, then we say that the mind's going to see things as they are. And in seeing clearly the way things are, letting go happens. There isn't somebody who lets go, but letting go happens when the mind comes into that beautiful balance. So this is a beautiful sutta discourse that really puts the seven factors in the context of the whole path. I thought I'd kind of take the time to go through it, and I'll have it up on our webpage um, tomorrow, and I'll include a link to it in an email. I'll send an email out to the group tomorrow once I have everybody who isn't in the Google group in the Google group. Once, when the Blessed One was staying at the Anjana Forest Game Refuge, a wanderer came to where the Buddha was staying and greeted him and engaged in pleasant conversation, then eventually sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to the Buddha, Venerable Gotama, I like frequent gatherings, I like to frequent gatherings in parks. That's where the ascetic practitioners would be camped out. It is my habit at midday after my morning meal to go to the park, to go from park to park, from garden to garden. There I encounter various priests and contemplatives discoursing on the rewards and def- uh, the rewards of defending their own tenets in debate and the rewards of condemning those of others. Now, in the experience of what reward do you dwell? So that's his question to the Buddha. And then the Buddha responds that he's experiencing the reward and the fruits of clear knowing and release. So that's sort of interesting that the way the Buddha describes the fruit of his practice is there's clear knowing and there's release. The heart, the mind, 
is released of any burden, any weight, any struggling, and there's clear knowing. It reminds me of, some of you might remember better than I do now, but there's a a simple line in uh, the book about Deepama, this very important teacher, woman teacher in our immediate lineage, um, one of the teachers of Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein and many of the other Westerners um, who kind of initiated this insight meditation tradition here in the West coming out of Theravada Buddhism. But in uh, the book about Deepama, she was an Indian woman who studied and practiced in Burma and then went back to India where she met some of the Westerners who were practicing there in the late 60s and 70s. Eventually came to IMS in Massachusetts a couple times a little bit later, I think in the late 70s and early 80s. But anyway, in her book, somebody asked her, you know, what's your mind like? (laughs) And she said, there's emptiness and concentration and love. Does that sound right from those... I don't think I think love was a word that she used in, in transla- the way they translated at least. Yeah. Anyway, there's a p. Yeah. Love. Yeah. So that's sort of nice, right? She's considered, you know, a pretty awake person. So that that would be a mind we'd probably be interested in moving through life with: peace, love, and stillness. And, it, and the interesting thing is maybe we could do everything we, that needs to get done in our life so much better. It's not, not that we'd be dysfunctional as a, you know, somebody with a lot of wisdom or a lot of depth in our practice, but maybe it would set us free to really show up. I'll find that passage from Deepama, or maybe somebody wants to volunteer to track it down for us. So this person, this is really great, you know, because he doesn't stop with that answer from the Buddha where he says, the reward of, of the fruits of clear knowing and release. And then the person asks, but what, are the, but what are the qualities that when developed and pursued lead to the culmination of clear knowing and release? And so the Buddha says, well, the seven factors of awakening. So this comes pretty far into the practice because there's a lot more to come. He's going to ask, of course, well, what sets the seven factors of awakening in motion? He says, and what are the qualities that lead to the culmination of the seven factors of awakening? And the Buddha answers the four foundations of mindfulness, or the four establishments of mindfulness, or seeing the mind and body as they are, in and of themselves, not experiencing the body or experiencing the mind from a conceptual point of view, but seeing the feeling tone in the mind or the mental objects, the skillfulness and unskillfulness of the mind directly, immediately, sensation in the body, the body immediately, not in terms of some conceptual view of the body or mind. So this is an important teaching, uh, that, especially in our tradition, to really understand that when we say we're aware of the body and mind, we may be aware of our thought or we may be knowing the thought we have about our mind or body. So it takes some training to see, to know the body in and of itself. And when we can do that, then the natural fruit 
is that these seven factors that we'll be talking about the next eight weeks come into balance, get developed and come into balance. So he asks the Buddha, you know, as he asks all the people he runs into at the parks, all the ascetics, so what benefit have you found in your practice? And the Buddha says, clear knowing and release. And he says, well, what did you do to get to clear knowing and release? He says, you know, the seven factors of awakening. And then how did they come to be? Four foundations of mindfulness or waking up to the body, to feeling tone, to the the mind, the quality of the mind, and the skillfulness and unskillfulness and how that moves in the mind. Waking up to these phenomena in and of themselves directly, immediately. And then he asks the same question. And what are the qualities that lead to the culmination of these four foundations of mindfulness? And he answers, the Buddha answers, the three courses of right conduct, right? So this is ethical conduct, developing right action, this commitment to non-harming, wise, kind, non-harsh, truthful speech, and wise or skillful livelihood living a life where we kind of make our way through life without causing harm, a livelihood that causes harm, words that cause harm, actions that cause harm. So this outward harmony, really like having a lot of harmony, makes it easy to be mindful of the mind and body. But when our life is agitated because we're not living in harmony, we don't have wise speech or we don't, have kind action, well, then our life is not going to be conducive to seeing things in and of themselves, seeing the mind and body in and of itself. And then he asks, he doesn't stop asking, and what are the qualities that lead to the culmination of these three courses of right conduct, ethical conduct? And the Buddha responds, restraint of the senses. And how does one, and how does restraint of the senses when developed and pursued lead to the culmination of the three courses of right conduct. So this is the thing about, you see in the discourses, it's kind of interesting, sort of an aside, but it's not so much that the Buddha comes, you know, wakes up and has this an agenda. You know, I think today I'm going to teach about this. It's just like he's out there, he's in the world, he has to come into town every day to get some food, and a bunch of students of his are following him around, so they come in and that attracts other people, and they ask questions, and they sort of get him going. So now this person asks a number of questions, and the Buddha sort of is on a roll, and all of a sudden, he starts to talk a little bit more, sort of spell out the whole path. Now he's going to go the other direction, basically talk about how the path unfolds. So he says, he asks his, himself questions, and then he answers them. And how does restraint of the senses when developed and pursued lead to the culmination of the three courses of right conduct? There is a case where a practitioner, on seeing a pleasant form with the eye, does not hanker after it, does not delight in it, does not give rise to passion for it. Unmoved in body, unmoved in mind, one is inwardly well-composed and well-released. On seeing an unpleasant form with the eye, one is not upset, One's mind is not unsettled. One's feelings are not wounded. One's mind does not become resentful. Unmoved in body, unmoved in mind, one is inwardly well-composed 
and well-released. So first he says it with seeing, right? But it's the same with sound, with smell, with taste, with touch, and with thought. Whether it's pleasant or with it unpleasant, right? So he's talking about the restraint of the senses means we're training in our life. This is a bulk, this is where we are most of the time in our practice, especially in daily life. We're in this place. You may not like the phrase restraint of the senses, but translate it in a way you want because this is the bulk of our practice where we're out in the world and we're seeing something that's pleasant or we're seeing something that's unpleasant. We're thinking something pleasant or we're thinking something that's unpleasant. We're having a pleasant touch or an unpleasant touch. Pleasant sound, unpleasant sound. And we're practicing being okay with the pleasantness or the unpleasantness of whatever's showing up in that moment. Yeah, now it's like this. That's okay. I can, I can live with this. I can be okay with this. It won't be this way forever. It's just this way now. Let me do what's next. I'm, I'm not going to let the mind build a drama, a self-centered drama, because it's pleasant right now or it's unpleasant right now. I'll do what needs to be done. I don't need to be afraid of what's pleasant or afraid of backing away from what's unpleasant, but I'm not going to unnecessarily proliferate around the pleasantness or unpleasantness. That's the restraint of the senses. We're not orienting our life around pleasant and unpleasant. And that's a real shift. And in a way, you could say that the fork in the road, and that's not like a one-time fork, but between living an ordinary worldly existence and being on a spiritual path is a good definition of when we're living an ordinary worldly existence is when the, the most important thing in the moment is the pleasantness or unpleasantness and our habits of you know, maximizing the pleasant and getting away from the unpleasant. When we're doing that, we're just an ordinary human being. Not so different than all the other, most of the other animals. That is just doing our best to get away from unpleasant and to get toward what's pleasant. But when we see the endlessness of that activity and how much stress arises when that is the entire focus of one's existence, one gets interested in another exploration. And to do the other exploration, we have to be okay with whatever pleasant or unpleasant is happening to some degree. It's like, I'm not going to obsess about pleasant and unpleasant because instead I'm using my awareness, my psychic energy, my life to investigate, right? And that brings us, and then he goes on. What does one do when one is unmoved in body and mind by the pleasant and unpleasant? And the Buddha says, and how are the three courses of right conduct developed, right? Because then once you've refrained from being obsessed about pleasant and unpleasant, you can actually become a moral being. All of a sudden, because you're not obsessed by pleasant and unpleasant, you realize there's a lot of suffering in the world. And in the same way that I don't want to suffer, I don't want anybody to suffer. So how can I look at my actions, my speech, my livelihood, 
how can I really pay attention, become attuned, now that I'm not obsessed by pleasant and unpleasant, to start living in a more ethical, more harmonious, more intentional way, where like we've allowed roots to grow out, where we're sort of aware of the interconnection. Now, we're learning, hopefully all of us are learning more and more about these ways that we get conditioned by culture that perpetuates cycles of suffering around difference, around race, around sexual orientation, gender, around difference, and just class, and all these sort of ways that beings are being oppressed, and even between different species, human beings abusing, oppressing other animals, harming other animals. So I'm not saying that this is this uh, intention to live more harmoniously, to live with a more refined commitment to non-harming. I'm not saying you get to the end. What the Buddha is saying, what seems to be true in my own life, is the more I pay attention to it, the more space and ease. It's protecting, it's liberating to pay attention to ethical conduct. It's a source, a very resonant source of happiness. Initially, it seems like a big pain in the butt to have to care about how much energy we use or how, like this issue of uh, privilege. What does, uh, like in, in my case, what is the responsible thing to do being a, a white male in this society at this time. But the interesting thing that I'm slowly discovering is it's more liberating to hold that difficult question, to keep it alive, than than it is to pretend that it isn't a relevant question. And so this is, you can see, this is a big thing. So the Buddha says that when we are willing to restrain the senses, and again, I know some of you won't like that phrase, but it means not living a life where the end all is this obsession with pleasant and getting rid of unpleasant. Realizing that there's got to be more to life, more resonant happiness than endlessly managing pleasant and unpleasantness. And we, we sort of get, in a sense, when we put that aside, we get reborn as a moral being and we realize we start to uncover the happiness of living with integrity. And we start to notice the unhappiness of being negligent about those things. Like we can't put up with being insensitive anymore. It doesn't feel good to sort of like shut the door, don't care, it's not my responsibility Right? We start, this is like you hear in different traditions about how spiritual life becomes more and more narrow. And this is a thing. It's like once we start down this other path where we realize I'm not going to spend my time obsessing about pleasant and unpleasant, and we start to wake up to sila, to ethical conduct, it just draws us in. We become more sensitive. The more harmonious, the more sensitive we are, the more sensitive we can be the more we see 
it's endless seeing the causes for suffering in the world of injustice. But we have to tune in how alive, how liberating it is to take responsibility, never knowing whether we're going to get to the end of it. doesn't matter because it's a liberating movement. So wherever we are, taking the next step, being a little bit more sensitive, caring a little bit more, we sort of follow the thread. And then it leads on. So how are the three courses of right conduct developed and pursued so as to lead to the culmination right, of the four frames of reference to allow for this deeper investigation of mind and body? So he says, the Buddha says, there is the case where a practitioner abandons wrong action in terms of his or her deeds and develops right conduct in terms of one's deeds, abandons wrong conduct in terms of one's speech, develops right conduct in terms of one's speech, and then the same with um, one's thoughts. This is how the three courses of right conduct, when developed and pursued, lead to the culmination of seeing the mind and body, the four foundations in and of themselves. And how are the four foundations developed and pursued so that the seven factors of awakening? So now we're, because we've developed And again, it's not like you get to the end. It's like we're cycling through these different places all the time. But when we're living with a lot of integrity, we feel pretty settled in life. There's a a kind of contentment that comes from being really sensitive to harming and non-harming. It's like in more sort of Western psychological terms, we'd say we have really good self-esteem. And it, it arises not because we're done with our work, but because we know that we care about the work. And that sort of settledness allows the mind to study something that's more refined. Seeing the moment-to-moment activity of the mind and body in and of itself. So now we're getting to what we would normally call mindfulness meditation in a way. So there's a lot that comes before. Now, we don't have to wait until we've perfected all of these earlier stages of the practice before we sit down and spend 45 minutes doing mindfulness practice, right? Because we're cycling through all these different stages. We're practicing in a really gross level of just like restraining ourselves from thinking that having a pleasant experience is going to be the end all. Maybe I won't move my body. I could stretch out my leg, but maybe I'll just feel what I feel so that I'm not endlessly managing my pain when I'm meditating. Or it's a little cold. I could get a blanket, but maybe I'll just be okay with the cold. Or I really don't want to be here tonight. I could sneak out, pretend like I'm going to go use the bathroom and then just leave. (laughs) But I think I'll just use the bathroom and come back. (laughs) <laughs> or whatever. So that's sort of like realizing the limitation of always trying to do what's pleasant and move away from what's unpleasant. You know? And then we just move through these different places at different times. But when we can be with the body and the mind and see the activity of mind and body with real clarity, it's just this being known, it's just this being known, then we're 
at the place where we're working with the seven factors of awakening. Because otherwise, a lot of what we're doing is we're lamenting that there isn't equanimity or there isn't tranquility or there isn't concentration or wanting. So there's greed in the mind because we want to investigate or we want more energy or we want the joy, the rapture. These are the seven factors that I've just mentioned. But what we really do is if we do, if we're developing, working on all the different parts, different, you could say, frequencies of our practice from more gross levels, more dense, as in a sort of energetic sense, to the more refined levels of practice, then every once in a while, the practice will be operating in a mostly refined level. And then because we are having this continuity of present moment awareness, and the awareness is seeing the mind and body in and of itself, not in terms of our thoughts about the mind and body, then we'll naturally, it sort of like comes online. These seven factors just come online. And the practice isn't making the, these factors come online or even actually developing them. It's at that point your practice is to recognize. So it's just mindfulness again. Oh, look it. Investigation is happening. Oh, look it. There's unflappable energy in the mind. Oh, look it. There's joy. Oh, look it. There's tranquility. Oh, look at here. There's stillness. There's equanimity. It's just the recognizing these things. And in the recognizing of the seven factors, they get developed. They get strengthened. They become very powerful. And they start coming into balance. The energizing, which is the investigation and the energy and the joy, the rapture, and the tranquilizing, the tranquility, stillness of concentration and equanimity, they start coming into balance. So this is one of the things that for me and I think for a lot of us has been a cause for a lot of trust, a lot of faith energy in the practice is as we play with these different levels of the practice and we see them, the sort of results as this teaching um, and you can reread it on your own uh, after I send it out next week, we see that these maps actually point to natural processes of our mind, of our heart. And when we see how these conceptual maps that we call the teachings of the Buddha line up directly immediately with our practice, then we start having a lot of confidence in what the Buddha points to practice like it might be possible for a human being living in a messy world with birth and death and all the other you know parameters of existence it might be possible to live with a kind of love a kind of freedom a kind of nimble skillfulness that uh, we would normally dismiss as like wishful thinking or you know some kind of religious you know idealism like no no it's maybe it's true maybe it's possible to live that this body mind thing here my life that in this life something truly beautiful truly good can arise 
And then we really start putting in the time, even for those of us who have busy lives or have a lot of responsibilities or have kids at home or a job or uh, financially in a situation where you have to work two jobs or don't have good health or all the other things. But we do what we can do because we're in it for the long haul. We feel the joy that there is a path, there is a way that delivers results, that is good in the beginning, the middle, and the end. It's good for this being, good for all beings, doesn't cause harm. So it might be useful for you, there's a little bit more that I don't have time to read tonight, it might be, this is a really accessible discourse, and it's really nice because it kind of maps out the whole path. First, backwards, like, what did you get? How'd you get that? How'd you get that? How'd you get that? And then that warms the boot up, and then he goes forward. When I did this, this is how I did it. And in doing that, this arose. And then I did that, and then this arose. And he goes back to the culmination of clear knowing and that unshakable release of the heart. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Appreciate being here together in community. It's one thing to imagine the Buddha, you know, because we tend to attribute to this person a lot of these wonderful, beautiful, amazing qualities. But remember that his awakening was then passed down. There have been countless folks, women, men, people, practicing in the way the Buddha taught, realizing the same freedom, the same wisdom and compassion, one generation after another. And these people, they had busy lives, complicated lives, They did their practice as best they could, and they were part of passing it down one generation at a time. So for 2,500 years or so, maybe even longer, these teachings, this awakening, this freedom, this great love, unconditioned love and skill has been transferred generation by generation. So now it's our turn. We hear these teachings It's our job to check them out, to make them real in our own lives, make them come alive in our own hearts and minds, so that the next generation benefits, we can pass on, that we can, this thread of faith that there is something to do with human existence beyond just getting to the end, you know, just avoiding pain or having nice experiences. There's something that's deeply beautiful and skillful and healing and compassionate to do with our lives. So may we all find this thread, follow this thread, and live in a way that's a gift for those who come later. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, 
www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.